Uh, my name is John. If I haven't met you, I have the joy and privilege of being one of the pastors here, and I'm uh, very grateful that you're joining us today. Um, I think this will be like us for the summer. If you're noticing there's less people, it'll be like, when I tell, I was just sending out, there's a bunch of people that are going to come and preach throughout the summer in our Rule of Life series, which will start in a few weeks, um, and uh, I tell them it'll be between 50 and 150 people here on Sunday, and they're like, As, whatever happens, don't take it personally, however many people are here. Uh, Well, we're looking at uh, the early church in the book of Acts as an extension of Jesus' jubilee ministry in the Gospel of Luke. So we're in the Gospel of Luke, and now we've moved into the the book of Acts, and we've observed a few things about this early church in, in Acts, that there are a group of people who have received Jesus' presence through his promised spirit, and then among the other practices that, that characterize them, like prayer and worship and gathering together, there's also this practice that we saw of being committed to gathering around a table. Then we looked at, there's three places that this happens. If you want to go to the next slide, uh, please, Caleb. That there's three places where this happens. Oh, no, never mind. There it is. That's what I'm looking for. That there's three circles or three places that these tables that they meet at. The first is the closed circle or the close circle, which is that they'd gather together in the temple. They would gather together around the Lord's table uh, with a group of people who follow Jesus at a specific time during the week. And this is a very special and important time. But then they would extend that table out into the dotted circle, into the homes that they lived in. And this is a place where people from the community of of believers and also the communities that they lived in could come and learn about Jesus. And then finally, they went into the half-circle spaces, these places in the neighborhoods, these parks, these pubs, uh, the cafes, wherever people were going, that's where they would head out in to take the good news about Jesus. And so we're looking at this as a new paradigm for us about thinking about what we do here, but also how that extends into uh, the places that we work, to the places that we live. Um, And so we started last week by looking at this close circle. What happens actually when we come to this table? So we looked at Luke 22, and I want to look at it again, just read through it to remind us of of where we've been. So this is the first Lord's Supper uh, in Luke 22, starting in verse 14. It says, when the hour came, Jesus reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And then he said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So we noticed last week that that this table that Jesus is setting actually takes place within this big story. It's within a much bigger story of what's going on. Jesus continues, for I tell you, I will not eat again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So the story that we have is part of a, there's a past to it, this Passover, that Jesus comes, and there's also a future component to it, that we will eat with Jesus once again. And we live in that story in the middle of it. I mentioned this yesterday at at, uh, Christy and Brandon's wedding, which we celebrated, that, that we live in this moment, which is not the high water mark of history. But we live as followers of Jesus in this story where there are two great moments where we look back to Jesus coming, that he lived, that he died, that he was raised, that he's reigning and ruling now, and he will come again. And this moment that we celebrate, the table, is in between those moments. It's fundamentally a place of tension. Jesus continues, it said, he took the bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So when we come to the table, we learn three things, that it's focused on Jesus, that he is the host, and we are the guests, we come as guests to receive from him, and then finally, that there's an invitation for us to partner with him at the table. 
Instead of grapes and grain at the table, what we see is wine and bread. It's, it talks about a partnership between God and humans. So I just want you to imagine that you're sitting down at, at this table with Jesus. and what, It would just be unbelievable. The first last supper that you get to celebrate with Jesus, he institutes this amazing practice that's been happening for over 2,000 years. And I just think for me, if I was there, like what a moment of awe and resonance. What, what a moment of reverence to be there with Jesus. What a, what a privilege. And uh, some of you said that last week, even as we talked about through this, this story and through this passage, you're like, I didn't really realize how much is packed into this table that we do every week. And so what an honor it would have been to be there with Jesus in that first moment. And so my mind thinks like, well, what would happen afterwards? Like, what would be the next thing? And, and what I would think would happen would be like after eating the meal, they went out and they sang a couple Hillsong songs. And then they took a group photo, you know, and posted it on Instagram, and everybody liked it, nobody hated it, and it was just all great. Or that we would see what happened in Acts 2, right? That they, ha- they held everything in common, that it was this beautiful moment of, of unity amongst the believers and the, ch- the church, and then they took this meal into their homes and to the other spaces that they live in their lives. But that is not what happens in Luke's gospel. Listen to what he says happens at, right, right after. Verse 23, they began to argue among themselves. Then in verse 24, then a dispute arose among them. So the first thing that happens after Jesus institutes this meal is they get in two fights. I love how honest this is, because uh, to me it's surprising, but if you think through the story of the Bible, um, uh, you will realize that oftentimes after these mountaintop moments, after these really beautiful and amazing moments in the Bible, what happens is something very sad. Exactly the opposite. When Moses gives the Ten Commandments, the Israelites completely rebel. And if you read through the New Testament, you'll see that most of the churches in the New Testament actually are pretty messed up. And when Paul writes to the Corinthians about this meal, he says to them, like, I can't, I can't praise you for this meal because what is, what is happening among you is actually division and not unity. And so this is pretty normal, uh, and it should be normal in the church. If, if the church, if the vision of what the church is, is not a bunch of people who are, all believe the same thing and think the same thing coming together, but rather what Paul says, that it's Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, these groups of people who outside these walls don't get along very well, coming together, coming around a table, then we should expect that there will be some division, that there will be some dissension, that there will be some fights. So let's, I want to look briefly at these fights. And I'm not really going to focus on the content of them, but more about why they happened and then how Jesus responds. So why they happened and how Jesus responds. So let's look at argument number one. So Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you, ending this beautiful passage. But then he says, but look, the hand of the one betraying me is at the table with me. For the Son of Man will go away as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So he's saying, someone at this table is going to betray me. And here's where the disciples get in an argument. They began to argue among themselves which of them it was going to be who would do it. Who is this dirty dog? Who is the worst person? Is that, I don't know. That's, what I, that's, that's my best. I don't know. Okay. Who is the lowest person in this room? Who is the person who's going to betray? And the whole idea here is like, it's not going to be me. It's got to be somebody else that's going to do it. Who is the worst person in this group? That's what they're trying to decide. Okay. Argument number two. I'll try to do better with this one. No dirty dogs. Okay. 24, verse 24, argument number two. Then a dispute also arose among them who should be considered the greatest. So what's happening? It's exactly the opposite. Who among us is the best? 
So their disciples are jockeying for social position around the table with Jesus. And this is off-putting and bizarre to us. Like if you were to go to another church, you know, next Sunday, and you were, they were to announce communion, and you saw like people getting in the starters blocks, and then they like raced to the front, and the first person there was like, ha, I'm the best, you're the worst, get in the back. You'd be like, I'm not coming back to this church ever again. This is like bizarre, right? So what's happening here? Why is this happening? Well, Jesus explains in the next verse. Verse 25, he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who have authority over them have called themselves benefactors. Why are the disciples acting in this way? Why are they so concerned with their social position? It's what they've learned. This is what goes on in the culture around them, that everybody is concerned with their social position, and so the disciples are just doing what's normal, what's normal in the world. Listen to how Diane Chen, uh, who has a great commentary on Luke, explains this. As unbecoming as the disciples' behavior seems to us modern readers who consider humility a virtue, they're clamoring for greatness and they're accusing other people of being low, of their lowness, was in fact the honorable thing to do among men in the ancient world. If the goal of life was to amass honor and minimize shame, then fighting to be first was par for the course. Just normal. In a graceless system where human relationships were monitored in terms of debits and credits, Even the noble-sounding idea of benefaction was turned into a means for oppression. Benefaction is like helping someone out who's lower than you. The benefactor, the person who helped with resources and influence, might perform a favor for a client. But the law of balanced reciprocity would obligate the client to publicly lavish the benefactor with praise, elevating the latter's status to a higher level. This means that the system made the powerful more powerful and the powerless more powerless. So in their culture, in the story that they live in, in the world around them, they're doing exactly what's expected of them, to fight for social position. This is just best practice. This is, as Diane Chen says, this is just par for the course. This is normal. And they're bringing their stories, they're bringing the way that they act out in the rest of the world, the way that they've been trained to live, they're bringing it to the table, and what happens is it's causing division. It's causing fracturing, it's causing power plays, and we've been following Jesus through the Gospel of Luke. It's exactly the opposite of Jubilee, what's happening at the table. So what's Jesus' response to this? So he says, this is how everything happens in the world around you. This is how everybody does it. This is the way the world works. Verse 26, but it is not to be like this among you. It is not to be like this among you. Now, before we look at what Jesus is saying in this passage or in this, this verse, uh, I want to note what Jesus is not saying, which is a bit of a dirty pastor trick. Uh, it's like a stall, you know. Uh, let's look at what Jesus is not saying, um, which maybe says, like, you didn't do your homework. Uh, but here, I think it's really important because we have a story around this as well. Jesus is not saying, you know what? Gentile culture is the worst. They're, so, they're dirty dogs. I just had to say it again. I don't know. They're the worst. Gentiles are just the worst. Let's go change their culture. Let's go, let's form a militia, or let's form a group and let's vote them out. Let's let's kick them out of here and make them take communion. Make them come around the table and then we'll change them. We'll show them a better way to live. Jesus doesn't say that at all. And if he would have, he would have been playing into exactly the thing that he's criticizing. He would say, let me use my power and authority over other people. That's not what he says here. Instead, he says this, it is not to be like this among you. There is something about this group of people 
that this people that God has called to the table, and he says, you are to be different. Whatever happens in the world out there, however your society acts, Gentile culture, Jewish culture, any other kind of culture, is not the point. The point is, how are we, as people of God, going to act? How are we going to be formed around the table? So we live in a different story within the larger story of our culture. We're not trying to change that story. That's not, the, that's not what Jesus is saying here. He says, it'll be different among you. So I'm going to try to say this as clearly as I can. Just like at the Last Supper, Jesus is telling the disciples that they are to focus on themselves, to focus on their community, and not change the Gentile or Roman culture around them. We today, celebrating Jesus' Supper, are to focus on ourselves. And the point is not trying to change Canadian culture in whatever way you might think it needs to change. The, that's not the focus of Jesus. The focus is on us. How will we be a witness and a counter-community to what's going on out there? It is not to be like this among you, Jesus says. On the contrary, we are to be a contrary community, a different community. On the contrary, whoever is greatest among you should become like the youngest, and whoever leaves, leads sorry, is like the one serving. This is this theme of reversal that we talked a lot about in our community hermeneutic series. For whoever is greater... Or for who is greater, the one at the table or the one serving? Isn't it the one at the table? And here's the key verse. Jesus says, but I am among you as one who serves. I am among you as one who serves. And so Jesus is saying to these early disciples and to us, look, power grabbing and ladder climbing might be normal in your story, might be normal in the world around you, but that will not be how it is in my family. Do you want to know how you should act as part of my family, then look to me, Jesus says. I am one who serves you. And in John's gospel, right before Jesus comes to the table with his disciples, he washes the disciples' feet. It's the lowest job uh, of any servant in the home. And in the next chapter in Luke, Jesus will take of himself, he'll give of his body and his blood to provide the meal for the disciples. He says, I am here as one who serves. And this is our new model. This is our new story. Not climbing the social ladder, but taking the posture of service like our King Jesus. So that's the passage. Now, what does this have to do with us? Well, we all come into this gathering. We come into this place and we come to the table carrying different stories. They're stories that we've inherited from our cultures there are stories that we've inherited from our families, and maybe even some of them we've inherited from churches that we've attended, or people that we listen to, and they work fine out there. The stories that we inherited all work fine in the world that we live in, but they can cause a lot of destruction in here if we're not coming to be formed around the story of Jesus. Because many of the stories that we have out there, and they may be good stories, they are antithetical to the way that Jesus wants to, us to organize ourselves. And if we allow those stories from out there to be the stories that we carry in here and the biggest ones that shape our lives, there will be no on the contrary to us. We will look exactly like everybody else. We'll be as petty as everybody else. We'll be as polarized as everybody else. We'll be as materialistic as everybody else. And then what will our friends and family say? Why would I be part of a church community? It just sounds like kind of a like middle way to spend a Sunday morning, honestly. Because everything that's going on in here is just going on out there. So you might say, okay, like, these stories sound pretty serious. Like, how can I know what my story is? How can I know if I'm bringing the wrong story to the table? Well, we have two problems here. Number one, we live in a globalized postmodern society. So that means that there's a million stories in this room. 
I can't just say this is the story that we all as Vancouverites inhabit. There's loads of different stories. But the second problem, and maybe more important, is that Jesus is not here. It would be a lot easier if Jesus was here like he was with the disciples. And just after you take communion, he's just standing right here, and he just tells you, he's like, hi, I just want you to know the third, the third point in the sermon, that was for you and your story. And you're like, thank you, Jesus. I, you, because you're Jesus, I'm not going to lie to you. I fell asleep halfway through the sermon, but uh, I will listen to the podcast and take that to heart later. That's not what's going on. Jesus is not here. So how do we know? How do we know what our stories are and how do we know what the destructive ones are that are going to cause us not to look like a, a different kind of community? How can we still hear, hear these words of Jesus? It is not to be like that among you for us. Well, I think there's, there's lots of different ways, but I want to just talk about four today. Four ways that we can actually still hear these words of Jesus as he invites us to the table to take his story rather than our own. So here's the first one. Jesus isn't here, but he gives us a blueprint that helps us to prepare to receive God's story. He gives us a blueprint for how to prepare and receive God's story. Now, I'm not going to spend much time on this because Mitch preached on it a few weeks ago, but it is one of these themes that we need to keep bringing up again and again and again in this series. Mitch talked about four postures that we need to have when we come to the table to prepare ourselves. Four questions, and these are the four. Am I prepared to be present here? Have I prepared myself for this time? And so one of the questions I think that we just have to ask is, am I coming to this time thinking that Jesus might want to challenge my story? Am I discerning the presence of God? Am I asking, what is God doing in this time, in this space, in the people around me? Am I open to submitting what God wants to, to what God wants to do? To saying yes to what God has to say to us? And am I open to loving my neighbor? To putting that into action? These are the four questions, and these are the basic blueprints for us coming to this table, and as we'll see, every table that we go to. Now, I get that many of us come here on a Sunday morning tired already. We talked about this at the beginning of the series. As Hartman Rosa says, we're part of an accelerating world. So this time on Sunday is like a Sabbath, and we just feel like we're stepping off the treadmill for one day. And so we barely maybe get out the door. Maybe we don't want to wake up this early, which I totally understand. Maybe we barely get out the door because we've got kids, and like only half of our family shows up because we had a fight along the way. So that's the biggest thing that's in our minds. Um, many of us are just coming here to see our friends who we haven't seen all week, people to connect with, or now maybe just for a cup of coffee and supposedly uh, a nice little treat as well, which is great. And in general, I think we just come here to feel like we're okay. And all of that is good and all of that is reasonable. And look, where, why, whatever reason you're here today, how, why, why ever, why, no matter why you're here, okay? I just trademarked that phrase, okay? Um, but why, no matter why you're here, we're so glad that you're here. Jesus isn't saying he has something less for you here, though. That maybe there's something more. That there's a a further invitation because God may actually be present in this time and in this space. God's present everywhere. But Jesus is making it clear that when we come together in his name as people who are focused on him, who are discerning his presence, who are going to submit to him and to love one another, and we come together around the table, that he is manifest here in a certain way. And so there's an opportunity for us to actually have something more happen, that he wants to offer us rest. He wants to invite us into his story. He wants to host us. He wants to take us out of our stories into a new way of being human. And are you prepared that that might happen when we come here? So how we prepare ourselves for this time 
depends on if we're able to understand that this, this, or we're able to hear that our stories, the stories that we bring to this time may not be the most helpful and that God wants to invite us into a bigger story, into his. So Jesus isn't here, but he's given us a blueprint for expectation. The second is that Jesus isn't here, but he's given us his story, which challenges our stories. Jesus isn't here, but he's given us his story, which challenges our stories. So we've, I'm going to probably share mostly stories here, because this is all about stories. So we spent the, the spring uh, looking at Jesus, uh, Jesus in, in the Gospel of Luke as he brings Jubilee. So we've just spent like 10 weeks looking at that. And every passage that we've read was Jesus confronting people and their stories. And he's saying, your stories are actually stopping my kingdom from coming. The way that you look at the world... The way that you're acting is actually stopping my kingdom from coming. And that happened 2,000 years ago, and that's still happening today. And let me just give you an example of how I found my story very challenged as we've been going through the Gospel of Luke this year. So one of the themes that I found challenging as a Western listener to Jesus uh, watching him do his ministry in the Gospel of Luke is that Jesus seems to see the world as a very spiritually alive place. So when he sees someone who's physically poor, when he sees someone who is relationally poor, he assumes that there's a spiritual component to that. No matter who the people are, he's like the, he assumes that there's something spiritual going on as well. And, so when, he, and when he speaks about why he's here, he gives three, three uh, reasons why he's here. Well, the Son of God came to seek and save the lost. The Son of God came eating and drinking. And the third is that the Son of God came to provide his life as a ransom. He's saying that there is this dark power and this dark force that is holding people captive. And that's why he came, is to free us from that. And that really challenges me, because I don't see the world like that, just to be honest. It's easy for me to say, like, oh, that's how people saw the world back then. But now we know, like, all these things happen, like disease and, you know, uh, physical people being poor because of brain chemistry, because of uh, systemic injustice, all these things. We live in a disenchanted world, as Charles Taylor said. So it's a a struggle for me to to watch Jesus do this as he brings Jubilee. But here's where it hit home for me uh, in in this last uh, Luke study. I recently um, had an incident in my life where I found it very hard to forgive people. And this is actually not just a recent incident. This is a lifelong problem for me. My wife is laughing. Um, When we can't cry, we laugh. Am I right? Uh, So I I do find it very hard to forgive people. But to be honest, it's also I actually just find it hard to forgive anyone. I'm the hardest on myself. I find it hard to receive forgiveness for myself. I find it hard to be, be forgiven. And then I also do find it hard to forgive people, just honestly. And there's a lot of talk, though, in Luke's gospel about forgiveness. Like, you just can't escape it. Uh, when Jesus announces his jubilee, he, he says, I have come to proclaim release to the captives and freedom for the oppressed. These words here are the Greek word aphasin. You thought you were going to hear that word again after hearing it like every week. Here it is again. A face in, a face in. They mean the same thing. Freedom, release, forgiveness is another way that that is described. And that word is like over 40 times, I think, in the Gospel of Luke. So studying it for weeks and weeks, I just can't get around this word. It's just everywhere. And then specifically in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches us to pray a face in us as we efface in others. Forgive me in the same way that I offer forgiveness to other people. And that really, really hit me. Because I was in a place where I I felt like I couldn't forgive some people in my life. And so I was moved to another place where Jesus talks about a face, which is on the cross. So with Jesus is is there on the cross. He's a completely innocent person, which in any argument that I get into, that's that's not true about me. 
And he's undergoing the worst of what humans have to offer, which he didn't deserve. And so he looks out at the people who have wronged him, and he says to God with one of his last breaths, a face in them. Forgive them. Because they don't know what they're doing, or that can also be translated, they can't see. They're blind to what they're creating in the world. And this reference is back to Jesus' jubilee words. A face in them. Free them because they are blind. And I have come to bring sight for the blind. It's all there in the jubilee language. See, Jesus is not against people taking personal responsibility for themselves. But every time someone hurts him, he sees that there is a bigger spiritual force that's behind that. That there's this dark power at work within the world. And so people are still responsible, responsible for actions, but every atrocity in our world, every slight that we experience, Jesus, for Jesus, he says there's this bigger story that's going on. There's this dark spiritual power at work pulling the strings, and every one of us is held captive. But I have come to free you. I've come to free you. I've come to efface in you, so now that you can efface in other people. And I realize, because I try to, I, I don't have this bigger vision of a spiritual world, this bigger, darker power, which sounds just weird to me to think about. I was putting all the pressure and all the anger on on the people that I felt had hurt me. And I wasn't actually able to forgive them because I felt like they didn't deserve it because I didn't have this bigger story. And so Jesus comes to me from the cross. Jesus comes to me all over the Gospel of Luke and he says, it will not be so with you. Maybe that works out there. That's how I've been taught to act That's how our world acts. If someone wrongs you, take it back, double-fold. Get on social media and just blast them. But Jesus says, it will not be so with you. Learn to free. Learn to let go. Learn to forgive. Learn to put all your anger and your hatred towards that dark power which deserves it. And then see that I have freed you from that. I have set you free. And so you can set other people free. Trade your story for mine and live in jubilee. Where in the series of Jubilee has Jesus challenged you? I know that we've had people up here sharing about the gospel, in the gospel storyteller time about the places that they've been personally impacted by Jubilee, this idea of Jubilee. Where, is, where are things on tumble drive for you? Where is God reaching out to you in that story and saying those words to you? It will not be so with you. Maybe there's people you need to forgive. Maybe there's uh, places that you need to go that Jesus is inviting you. I don't know what exactly those are but he gives us a story to challenge our own stories. That's why we take time every Sunday to look at the story of Jesus and to ask ourselves, where is my story off? Because it will not be so with us if we want to be a community of people that looks like Jesus around this table. So Jesus gives us this preparatory blueprint. Even though he's not here, he gives us his story. And then third, Jesus gives us his Holy Spirit to direct us into the story of God. Now, the Holy Spirit, uh, talking about the work of the Holy Spirit would be a very, very long conversation. Um, So let me, again, just try to give one example and encapsulate how I think the Holy Spirit works sometimes in our gathering here today. One of the things that we do when we gather is we sing together. And it's been part of the practice of the early church, uh, as we've seen, but it's also been a practice of the people of God. The psalm that was read by Dan, that's something that would have been sung sung by the people of God. We are a singing group of people, and I'm so grateful for all of our musicians and our AV people and Karsten, who runs that team, for for giving of their time and energy and effort to lead us in uh, that way. Now, I don't want to put too fine a point on, on it, but I do think that one of the ways that the Spirit works when we come together and we sing, at least for me, is that there's sometimes there's a drawing in to a song. 
and sometimes there's a pushing back. And I think that both of these are actually the spirit at work, oftentimes. I'm not a big musical worship person. Um, I'm an introvert, so singing loudly with uh, other people in a room is not my favorite thing. No surprise to anyone. Um, But one of my favorite songs to sing, actually, is the doxology. The words go like this. Praise God, from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. That's just such a simple verse. And when we sing it, usually the, the, the band gets kind of quiet. We can all hear our voices. People sing out. People even sing in parts. Some of us try to sing in parts poorly. But it creates this beautiful, joyous sound that I, I just love. And, and it also is just such a simple thing. I, 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 for me, anyways, don't take this. If you're different, that's totally fine. But I don't like the songs that tell me how I should feel about God. I just Anyways. Um, but this one is nothing about me. It's just God. Praise him. It's a call to just praise. Come praise everyone. Come praise. And it reminds me that there will be a call for every one of our neighbors. Come. Come and praise. All creatures come and praise. And it's just this amen at the end. Let it be. That's what it means. May this be true. May this be true in my life. May this be true in our community. And I often feel drawn in in those moments. Drawn into the song. Drawn into the story that I want to be a person of praise. But I think it's not just the moments where we feel drawn in that the Spirit is tapping on our shoulders. I think oftentimes it's also the places that we might be pushed away by songs. We sing another song called Who You Say I Am. And the lyrics include statements like this. I am chosen, not forsaken. I am free at last. I'm a child of, child of God. I am who you say I am. And we all sing these words, but I know from pastoring you and talking with you that for a good chunk of us in this room, we don't believe those words. Or better said, we may believe them, but we don't embody them. They're not the truest stories about who we are because we have other stories that we carry into this place about who we are. That we're not enough, that we're unlovable, that we're not okay. And maybe those stories come from a place in your childhood where someone told you that you're not worth anything or that people have just continually left you over your life. So you wonder, can I actually be someone who's loved? Or you're just coming in with the story of this, our, our city tells, and, and that I think we try to tell in Canada right now, which is we tell everybody, like you, are like, you are like the jewel in the eye of a unicorn that's jumping over a rainbow towards a pot of gold. You are just the most special thing ever. And I think we laugh at it, but there's truth, you know, there is truth to this, these statements. And, and like, they're very well-meaning, but here's what I find. People who have heard that over their life again and again, at the core, when I talk to them, if we're able to get into the core of, of who they are as a person, there's a very, very fragile place there where they're saying, I don't think I'm enough. I don't know if anybody can love me. I don't know if I'm okay. And so it's hard to take these words truly into our hearts. It's, sometimes it's hard to sing them. And I think those are one of those moments where the Holy Spirit is right there. We may be leaning back, but his hand is reaching out to us through song, through what we sing together. And he's saying to you, it will not be so with you. Everybody out there in the rest of the world is performing to know that they're okay. Everyone else is out there is yearning to hear that they're okay. And I will invite you to come to the table and remember the most true thing about you. That you are okay because I've given my life for you. That I want to host you at my dinner party. Come, come to the table. 
And so you may feel drawn back, but the Holy Spirit is reaching out. And so very practically, if that's you, if those moments happen where you can't sing, and sometimes that happens to me, where I just can't sing the song, the lyrics of a song, I just invite you to close your eyes and let us sing for you. Hear the voices of the rest of the people in this room pronouncing those words over you. And then come to the table. Believe that this is the truth about you. And then go, come pray with, with somebody. Help them to, or allow them to share your burden along with you, that those things become part of you. Feel the, the Holy Spirit at work within your life and with our community. And that's just one of the ways. But Jesus is not here, but he has given us his spirit in order for us to hear how our stories are off. So Jesus isn't here, and those are the three ways. The last way is this. Jesus isn't here, but he's given us each other. Again, this is about stories, so let me just tell one last story here. I uh, attend something called the East Van Ministerial, which is a bunch of generally older pastors that I get to hang out with about once a month. And uh, I really like hanging out with them because they're not concerned with uh, things that a lot of my peers are, um, like changing the names of our church. Are they cool enough? They're just like, look, we've just been doing it for like 40 years, you know, and we're just here with the least cool people in the world. But we've just been grinding away, and I just love hanging out with these these folks. Mitch and I get to go sometimes. So, one of the pastors told me a story this week. He said that him and his, he and his church were trying to raise $1.5 million to build a daycare. Um, if you're not from Vancouver, yes, that's how much. It's not, it's not a big daycare, okay? This is a small daycare. So they got some money from the government, and then they asked their church, hey, can we, we need to raise $800,000 more, or something like this. Uh, more than that. It was about a million. And, and about $200,000 came in, so they had about $800,000 left to raise for this daycare. So they're at a leadership meeting, and they've been trying to raise this money for a long time. It's mostly older guys around the table, 60s, 70s, 80s, okay? And uh, they've come to the realization that if they don't have this money soon, they're just going to shut down the project. They don't think they have enough money. They don't think they're going to get it. And so they all left pretty sad. They were like, look, I don't think we're going to be able to build this daycare. As they're walking out, a younger guy in his 30s who had been invited to come to the meeting pulls this pastor aside, and he says, you know, I'm a little confused. Um, why are you saying that we don't have the money to build this daycare? And the pastor's like, look, you're new here. Maybe you don't understand how budgets work. So we don't have enough money in the church to buy the building. And the young guy's like, no, no, no. I, I, I understand how budget works, actually. But um, from where I stand... We totally have the money to buy this building if we feel like that's what God's calling us to do. Um, and the pastor's like, I don't think we do. And he's like, no, in this room, actually, we have enough money to buy this building. And the pastor looks at the young guy, and he's like, look, young man, once again, you're new here. Maybe you don't understand how much pastors get paid. I don't get paid that much. And everybody sitting around this table here, they're wonderful people, godly people, but they have not made a lot of money in their lives. We're just near the end of our careers, and we've just been grinding it out for all of our lives. Most of the people in this room have never made more than $100,000, so we do not have the money in this room to pay for this daycare. And the young guy said, oh, I understand all that, but all of you own houses. So when I come in this room as a 30-year-old guy, what I see is a bunch of millionaires sitting in this room. So I actually think we have enough money right in this room to buy the daycare if that's what God is calling us to do? What if some of you put up some of the money from your houses for this $800,000? If we feel like that's what God's calling us to do, why not just do that? And the pastor was absolutely shocked because he doesn't think of himself in his own story. He's not rich, right? 
He, in fact, he took me outside. He's like, see, see, look what I drive. It is like a beater. He's like, I only drive beaters. I was like, that is the definition of a beater, I think. That's exactly what it is. And he's a frugal guy. Like, you would never guess. He's not popping champagne bottles, playing Drake on a yacht or anything like that, okay? That's not this guy's life. But he had to be challenged by someone else who was living in a different story. It's a community member who's just a little bit younger who sees the world differently. He's never seen himself in that story. So when he hears stories like the rich young ruler, he thinks that's always about other people. Could never be me. I'm not young. I'm not rich. But this younger guy who's just living in a different story comes and says, oh no, when I see you, I actually see a very different person. I see someone with a lot of wealth. It took someone with a different story to come and expose where God may be saying to that person, it will not be so with you. So I know I can't end the story there. If I ended the story there, everybody would come and ask me what it is, what happened afterwards. The pastor went home. He was pretty shaken, he said, because his story was really, um, the story that he was living in, like the whole foundation had been knocked out under, underneath him. So he uh, went home, and he felt that Holy Spirit heat that God wanted to do some business with him. So he prayed. He prayed with his wife. And then at the next meeting, they had not raised a lot more money. So they were about to shut down uh, the building project. And he said, I think uh, there's actually one more way that we could do this. He told the other elders around the table, he said, you know, when I, I bought my house 25 years ago, I bought it for $250,000. And we, it was a stretch. Our family had to go all in to make it happen. And we have sacrificed to make ends meet. And, but I finished paying off my mortgage in the next two months. And now, due to nothing that I've done, my house is, is worth millions of dollars. So I'm going to take $100,000 out against my mortgage, and I am going to give it towards this project. And I'm just looking for seven other people who will do it with me. I don't want to be the rich young ruler, he said. Although I'm going into my 60s, I don't want to coast on what I've done in the past. I want to live with God in faith in the present. And I'm just looking for seven other people who will do it with me. And they raise the money as people put money up against the homes that they have in order to, to make this daycare. All because some young punk was just willing to say something and live in a different story and say we live in different stories. You know, by God's grace, he's placed us into communities of people with different stories. This is why we do Gospel Storytellers today. I'm so grateful for Christiane and Peter and everybody who shares uh, their stories. Because not only do they help us to get to know each other better, not only do they testify to what God is doing in our lives, but they also allow Jesus to meet us and to challenge our stories when we hear from people who are different than us. So there's four ways that we can allow God to transform us as we come to the table into a community that looks more like Jesus, to challenge our stories. The first, being prepared. The second, listening to Jesus' story. The third is discerning the Holy Spirit. And the fourth is listening to each other's stories, especially those who are different than you. Especially those who are different than you. And you might say, as people have said to me before, oh, this is so much hard work. Why do I have to go and like dig? It sounds like counseling. I don't want to do counseling. I dig into my story? Come on. And I don't want to deny that it will be hard work. It must have been terribly hard work for those disciples around the table with Jesus when he's like, yeah, that's the way that everybody does it. It won't be like that with you. That's really saying that it's going to be hard work. But I want to leave you with Jesus' final words from this section which give us a vision of why he invites us to this kind of change. Why does God want us to change? He says to the disciples and to us, I bestow on you a kingdom, just as my Father bestowed one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in the kingdom, 
and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. This is why Jesus won't leave us alone. This, because church life is not supposed to be like just waiting it out until we get to heaven or creating a Christian country club where we can come and for one day a week we can be outside of our evil city or free childcare. That's not what this place is designed ultimately to be. The church is a place where we prepare ourselves to receive this inheritance that God wants to give us. That we are people who God wants to reign and rule with and even judge with, which is frightening for me to hear. But he says this is the time where we prepare ourselves to receive that inheritance, where we practice being those kinds of people who live in the story of God now amidst all the different stories that we come with in order when that time comes ultimately to be with Jesus, that we are prepared, that we are people who are ready, ready to reign and rule and even judge with him. He has a new vision for who we can become, and it's way bigger than any of our stories. He has a vision of us being new humans who can receive and live out the same kingdom that Jesus did, as people who are invited to this table and invited to that ultimate banquet table with Jesus, where we sit down with him in the glorious banquet of the new heavens and the new earth. That's what he has on tap with us. For, for each one of us, will you receive it? Will you step in? Will you be open to what God wants to do in and amongst us as a community? Let's pray to close. God, I, I hear this word to myself um, as very challenging, just as it must have been very challenging to the, the first disciples as I sat with you around that table. That even this glorious moment of, of joy and excitement as you institute this new practice that's so packed full with meaning, there's also a deep, deep challenge to us to, to wrap our stories around yours, to wrap our lives around yours, rather than to just live in our own stories. So I pray that even in this time as we come to the table now and as we sing, as we worship together, as we pray together, that this would be a time where we are invited into your story that you would call us out of the small stories that we live in into accepting your big story, into walking with you, and that you would take us as a group of people, that we would become a group of people who do have a different way forward, who do act differently than our wonderful city, but that we'd be a contrast community that people might see you, that they might see your glory and your honor and your power and your beauty even amidst us. So we ask for your presence to be with us during this time. We invite you to minister to us and help us to minister to each other in your name. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.